Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. What they were doing is they were being rejected by their community and by their government. Not to mention, the Roman Empire had just come in, wiped out the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. So this was their hometown that they just witnessed being destroyed. And so these, uh, these first century Jewish Christians had a lot of reason to maybe doubt what was going on. Maybe question their faith or, or wonder why in the world is God letting this happen? Or maybe their faith was starting to weaken a little bit. They needed some encouragement. So this letter was written to these first century Jewish Christians to encourage them. It compared a lot of the Old Testament figures with Jesus. And it showed how Jesus answered and, and was, was the fulfillment of a lot of these Old Testament figures. And they were kind of a prophecy of Jesus. Now, before the author transitions to his conclusion, he's going to give some words of encouragement. Like I said, these, Jews, these first century Jewish Christians needed some encouragement. So two weeks ago, we saw the author encouraged his audience to hold to their faith, uh, through which they receive hope and strength to endure the persecution. This week, uh, he's going to build on that same theme and show that many of the Old Testament heroes that these Jewish Christians grew up learning about were really heroes of faith. Now, it's a nice theological point that the author is making. See, he just spent 10 chapters showing that Jesus is greater than many of these Old Testament figures. So we have faith in Jesus. But these Old Testament figures are also heroes for us to follow. Yes, they, Jesus is greater than them, but they are also models for us to follow. All right, so this is chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to hit the whole chapter this morning. Normally, I don't like to hit that much text, but we're going to. I didn't really see a great way for us to break this into multiple sermons. Um, and so the main idea here is that the heroes of faith inspire faithful living. I'm going to say that again. The heroes of faith inspire faithful living. Well, the author starts with a question, what is faith? Well, he, actually, he starts with a definition of faith. So we're going to ask the question, what is faith? And then we see the section that's this, that shows a heavenly perspective. And then he finishes by showing some examples of hope through persecution. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right into this text. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you for the example that we have to follow in the Old Testament. Lord, even for us now, we have many examples also to follow in the New Testament and throughout church history, Lord. So I pray, God, that you will help us to see these figures as an inspiration to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. See, throughout this whole book, he's been laying a framework of why faith in Jesus, uh, why faith in Jesus because of his greatness is our only hope in salvation. And this is the first time that we really see the author define faith. Why now? Well, it's because it's the response to what he's been talking about. He's been talking about faith in Jesus. Now we need to define what faith is, right? Jesus is greater than and the fulfillment of all these Old Testament people and symbols and practices. Therefore, we place our faith in him. But what is faith? Well, faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The reality of what is hoped for. Now, this is not how our culture defines faith. Our culture places Christian faith in the same category as superstitions. Right, Though I guess what bothers me more is when I hear 
Christians still repeating a lot of these same superstitions. One of the most common ones, knock on wood. That's one of the most common superstitions that I've heard. Where does that superstition come from? Well, it started way back in pagan religions where they believed that good and bad spirits lived in the trees. And so if you wanted good luck, you could knock on the wood, knock on the tree to wake up these good spirits and give you good luck. Or if you were worried that the bad spirits were attacking you, you could knock on the tree and it would scare away the evil spirits. And so now when I hear Christians say something and knock on wood, I realize most Christians don't actually believe that, but I see that permeating into our culture, right? Other superstitions include throwing salt over the shoulder, walking under ladders, broken mirrors, lucky pennies, lucky socks, lucky horseshoes, Friday the 13th, black cats, fingers crossed, burning ears, and itchy palms. There's a whole lot of superstitions that are common in our culture. But these all have roots way back in pagan religions. I've often heard Christians refer to these in a joking manner, but I've also seen Christians act as if they believe these are true. Instead, the author of Hebrews claims that faith is not merely a superstition. Rather, it's based on the fact that we know certain things to be true and we act according to that truth. In other words, since we know that Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant, we act according to his grace instead of acting according to the Old Testament law. Since we know that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priests, we no longer seek the favor of these priests, or we no longer seek God's grace through the act of these priests. Instead, we go to Jesus himself because he is our priest. Since we know that Jesus is greater than Moses, we know that Jesus' teaching has supplanted Moses' teaching or replaced Moses' teaching. Since we know that Jesus is greater than the angels, we seek him for salvation. Ultimately, since Jesus is our source of salvation, faith is the reality of our salvation. Meaning, we know that Jesus has already earned it for us because we can't earn it ourselves. The good works that we do are not to earn our salvation. Rather, they are the outworking of our faith because of our salvation. Well, that's actually what the author is saying in the next little phrase here. The proof of what is not seen. Salvation is not something that we can show direct evidence of. Rather, we can show the results of it. Let me give you an example, all right? We just got back from our family vacation up in Michigan, and I could stand up here and I could claim that over our family vacation, I got this wild idea and went over to the tattoo parlor and got a face tattoo. Well, obviously, I'm standing up here in front of you, and I don't have a face tattoo, right? That's something that, is, that, that, has, that can be easily verified. It has direct evidence of that. And since there's no face tattoo on my face, then obviously, that didn't happen, right? So salvation is not quite like that. There's not a direct evidence. Let me give you another example, something that we see and we've heard a lot in the news lately. How about the COVID vaccine, okay? If I claimed to have gotten the COVID vaccine, there would be no easy way to give direct proof of that. Anybody can claim to have gotten the vaccine. There's no direct proof of that. Rather, in order to show the evidence of that vaccine, you get a little card that says, I got shot. You know, or I got shot twice, whatever, whichever one it is, right? And that's the evidence of that vaccine. Salvation is kind of like that. I'm not saying that the COVID vaccine is our salvation, but I'm saying it's, it's kind of like that, right? We can claim to be saved, but there's not really any direct evidence of that. Rather, the evidence of our salvation is the good works that we do as the outworking of our faith. It's indirect evidence. It is the proof of what is not seen. More specifically, as we've discussed a few times already in this letter, 
The evidence of our salvation is enduring faith. It is the good works that we do through faith throughout time and over time, even in the face of persecution. The first century Jewish Christians that this letter was written to could prove their salvation by the evidence of their faith displayed in their actions and decisions. The same is true for us today. We prove our salvation by the evidence of our faith displayed by our actions and decisions. The good works that a Christian does are not to earn salvation. Rather, it's the natural result of a life of faith. Now, for the rest of the chapter, the author gives examples from the Old Testament of this faith being evidenced in knowledge and in action. And what better place to start than the very beginning? In the beginning, God created everything, right? Go back to Genesis 1. So what does faith have to do with that? Well, look at Hebrews 11, verse 3. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. The creation of the universe. This this has been the source of discussion since, well, basically all of history, and it continues today. However, as Christians, we understand that the universe was created by God from nothing. Well, scientifically speaking, if you have nothing, it doesn't matter how long you wait, What do you get from nothing? Nothing. But one of the the prevailing theories of the beginning of the universe for the last hundred or so years has been the Big Bang Theory. And the idea of the Big Bang Theory is that before the universe was created, which kind of in itself doesn't make sense because there was no time before that, but before the universe was created, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes all time, space, and matter that, we, that, that is in the entire universe. That's been the prevailing scientific theory, and it's been, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that. But one of the things that bothers scientists, or uh, let me say secular scientists, one of the things that bothers secular scientists about this theory is that there's this, this huge scientific gap in it. Because if there was nothing before the Big Bang, then what caused the Big Bang? If there was no time, space, and matter before the Big Bang, then where did all this time, space, and matter come from? Well, obviously, there must be somebody or something that exists outside of time, space, and matter that caused it to happen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is made by things that are not visible. It is only by faith that we can understand the creation of the universe. But secular scientists have a problem with that because, according to secular scientists, there is nothing that exists outside of time, space, and matter. And so they've come up with some wild theories to explain this all the way. But when you look at it, you say, well, gosh, it requires a whole lot more faith to believe in that because there's zero evidence for a lot of stuff that they're claiming. It takes a whole lot more faith to believe in something like that than it does to believe that God created it all. By faith, we understand this. Though science seems to prove this point more and more, without faith, the concept of the creation of the universe cannot be accepted. So secular scientists reject God because of the Big Bang, though not because of evidence, but because of their own faith in a purely material reality. Now, that's just the start. And I'm already, I don't know, several minutes into the sermon. we got a whole lot more text to get through, so I won't be able to spend as much time on the rest of these. Um, But the rest of these are examples of heroes of the Old Testament showing their faith through their actions. So we'll start here in verse 4. We're going to read a little bit here. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. 
By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who, who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, what they mean by that is before the flood that we read about with Noah, it had not rained on the earth. Rain was not a thing before the flood. And so Noah comes out and says, y'all, there's about to be a whole lot of water that falls from the sky, and it's going to cause the whole world to flood. People would have thought he was crazy. But by faith, Noah believed that. By faith, after he was warned by, about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that, came, that comes by faith. All right, so Abel, Enoch, and Noah were all honored by God over their contemporaries, not because of their actions, but because of their faith. Their actions were just the evidence of their faith. All right, we keep reading, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has the foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she was considered that the one, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, one as good as dead, what that means is that Abraham was also kind of past the age of bearing children, but even from Abraham came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. Abraham and Sarah were chosen by God because of their faith. God saw their faith and chose them, called them out of their homeland to be the parents who would bring a whole nation of people to serve God. Abraham and Sarah were imperfect. They did a lot of things wrong. When we go back and read about Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis, we see they made some mistakes along the way. They were imperfect. So if God, cho if God chose them because of their actions, well, he would have had many good reasons to reject them. But God chose them because of their faith. Even though they were imperfect, their faith is displayed by following God's word. They made mistakes along the way, yes, but they constantly returned back to God. Their faith was displayed by their actions. And their enduring faith was displayed because they kept coming back to God, even when it didn't make sense. If we keep reading, we see what else Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah had in common. These all died in faith, although they, didn't, they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. They all died. But they all died with their eyes toward heaven, knowing that their current living situation was merely temporary. They made decisions based on the fact that their eternal residence was in heaven. There is more to this life than what we do on this earth. There is, this is a truth that should impact our decisions, every decision that we make. There is more to this life than what we do on this earth. There is more to life than the 70 plus or minus uh, life expectancy that we have. Well, we should call that an earthly life expectancy because there's more to life after that. Our time on this earth is short compared to our eternal destination. Therefore, the most important factor in making those decisions should be its eternal 
impact, the internal, eternal implications. So what the author means when he says, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These Old Testament figures are remembered in the Old Testament and honored by God, not because of what they did, but because of their faith. It was the outworking of their faith that they made their decisions. They knew that God was preparing a heavenly place for the faithful. And it was this knowledge that allowed them to do the things that they are remembered for. But the author's not done yet. Right? Picking up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the, promised, the promises, and yet he, was, uh, he, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be, able, to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. See, Abraham's faith was so great that he was willing to offer his promised son. He may, have, he may not have understood it, may not have understood what God was doing at the time, but he had faith in God. But his faith in God was so great that he followed God anyway. Even if that meant that God would have to bring Isaac back from the dead, Abraham followed God anyway. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, uh, each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. See, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph each displayed their faith because they had followed God's will, even though it didn't make sense to those around them. That's sort of the running theme here, right? The decisions that these people are making don't make sense without faith in God. The decisions that these people are making don't make sense if you're only thinking about what happens in the here and now, in this life on earth. If this is purely a material reality, then what these people are doing doesn't make any sense at all. Faith might lead a young family to sell everything they have, move into a camper, and drive across the continent sharing the gospel. Then that Faith in God might lead that same family to change their whole ministry plan and go to Great Britain as missionaries, even though they just had a new baby. Sounds crazy? Well, that sounds exactly like what Keith and Talia have been doing and are planning on doing in the next coming months. It's what they're doing because of their faith in God. Faith might even lead you to make parenting choices that others don't understand or might make you give up a life of royalty in favor of a life of slavery. Nobody would do that, would they? Oh, wait. Keep reading. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the, Egyptian, when the Egyptians attempted this, they were drowned. Now, I know there's a lot in here and there's a lot that we could talk about with Moses, but I just want to focus real quick here on verse 28. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. Now, I want you just, to just imagine 
being one of the Israelites, you've been enslaved, you've been in slavery in Egypt for your whole life, you've been tortured by Pharaoh for your whole life, and here comes Moses, right? And Moses says, now listen, y'all, I know that, that the Lord has allowed us to become slaves and watched as we were beaten and abused and overworked and even murdered. I know that Pharaoh has pushed back and made life harder for us each time that we asked to go worship the Lord. I know that Pharaoh has dug in his heels even in the face of all these, these, uh, these plagues. But check this out, y'all. Tonight, we're going to have barbecue. We're going to cook up some lamb. But we're going to take some of the blood of that lamb and we're going to paint it over the doorposts. Why? Why you want to paint some blood on your door? Well, because tonight, God's going to send an angel in throughout all the land of Egypt and he's going to kill all the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Sounds kind of, I don't know why Moses got an Alabama accent right there, but for some reason he did. But it sounds crazy when you think about it like that. But by faith, Moses gave this proposition to the Israelites because God gave it to Moses. And by faith, the Israelites followed him. Even though it didn't make sense, they did what Moses said. Moses had faith, even though it sounded crazy. He followed this plan. And even though it sounded crazy, the Israelites followed the plan too. They were able to do this because of the faith that they had in their Lord, the faith in the God of the Bible. Does the Bible give any other evidence of other crazy plans that God laid out that only make sense if we consider faith? Yeah, it does. Even here in, verse, uh, in chapter 11. Continuing in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. See, Jericho was this military stronghold. It was a fortress of a city, and it was built to withstand attack. So common sense says if you want to defeat that city, well, you need to bring a force stronger than that city was built to withstand. Well, but God had a different plan for the Israelites. Just march around the city and play some music, y'all. Now, I speak from experience when I say that the marching band... It's not typically the most feared group of people. But God, that was God's plan to defeat Jericho. By faith, the Israelites, looking at the situation from a heavenly perspective, they followed God's plan. Rahab, who lived in the city, knew just how dangerous it would be to be a traitor. Make no mistake, she committed treason against the city of Jericho because of her faith in the God of the Israelites. Continue reading. And what more can I say? Time is too short. For me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, and became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies in flight. All of these heroic stories happened because the protagonists were heroes of faith. They had faith, and so they could do this. Their faith allowed them to be used by God, they made decisions that seemed counterintuitive. People who looked on from an earthly perspective did not understand. These actions were only possible because of a heavenly perspective. They looked ahead to their heavenly home, to their eternal destination. And that was the perspective that they brought to the decisions that, that they made. But the author wants to caution against a sort of prosperity gospel. He wants to make sure that the, the readers don't think that just because of their faith in God that everything's going to always turn out great in this life. It will be great in the next life, but not everything is going to be great on this side of eternity. Picking up at verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again. That sounds pretty good. But on the other hand, other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. 
They were sought into. They, were, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Now, just because a person lives by faith does not mean that they will be exempt from pain and suffering. Rather, this pain and suffering gains a new meaning and a new purpose so, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Again, it's not an earthly perspective that brings understanding to the persecution that we face in Christianity. It is a heavenly perspective, or in this case, more specifically, an end times perspective. When we, last year, we went through our eschatology study. That's, that's the perspective that these people are bringing to the table. Though the sufferings of this world are real, Jesus' followers will be vindicated in the resurrection of the dead. In the end times, when Jesus returns, he will defeat his enemies, he will establish his perfect kingdom, and invite the faithful to rule with him in the new heaven and new earth. This is the reality of what is hoped for. We talked about way back in verse 1, the reality of what is hoped for. It is, the no, it is this knowledge that allows Christians, whether first century Jewish Christians whether it's the faithful of the Old Testament or 21st century American Christians, to stand up to persecution. It is that heavenly perspective because we know that there's a better answer in the end. But this chapter is not done yet. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Well, everything so far in this chapter it's kind of easy to understand on your first reading or maybe a slow reading. It's kind of easy to understand. But these two verses, they're not quite as simple to understand on a quick read. If all of these were approved by their faith, then why did they not receive what was promised? That's kind of been the whole theme of the chapter, right? Live by faith because of God's promises. But these people lived by faith and didn't receive God's promise. Well, their hope... The promise of God was the coming Messiah who would rescue his people and rule eternally in perfect form. In that matter, they have not yet received that promise. Why have they not yet received that promise? Well, look at verse 40. God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. These Old Testament heroes will be brought into the promised kingdom the, f- the same time as the first century Jewish Christians that were reading this letter, that this, aud- that this letter was written to. They'll go, they're going to be brought into eternity the same time as Christians who have been killed throughout church history. They're going to be brought into eternity at the same time that we will, or future generations. What the author is saying is that all who trust in God, living and dead, or future, will be transformed together. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel, Rahab, the prophets will all be resurrected to rule with Jesus when he returns. The Old Testament figures in chapter 11 did not experience the salvation of Christ's new covenant during their lifetime. Rather, they saw that promise from afar, and they eagerly awaited its fulfillment. For that matter, all those New Testament heroes that we read about now, Matthew, Paul, Peter, Luke, Timothy, Barnabas, they will all be resurrected when Jesus returns. The heroes of church history, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, The heroes of church history will be resurrected when Jesus returns. Our loved ones who have passed before us will be resurrected to rule with Jesus when he returns. For the original audience of this letter, and for us, the message is the same. These Old Testament heroes, they displayed their faith and they were approved by God. Many of them did great things for God. Many of them were persecuted for their faith. Yet their hope 
was not in anything in this world, but the coming Messiah who will rule eternally. They lived in this world, but their vision was on a coming world. No matter what came their way, they held to their faith. Let us look to the future coming Messiah with the same hope and hold strong just as they did. So we got to our application points, right? So our application is always knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back to defeat his enemies, to establish his perfect kingdom, and to invite the faithful to rule with him in the new heaven and new earth. This knowledge gives us hope. Well, this knowledge gives us hope if we have placed our faith in him for salvation. So if you have not placed your faith in him for salvation, then let him be your savior. Ask him into your heart and he can be your savior. And when he returns, you will be resurrected to rule with all those uh, that we've read about. If we have this heavenly perspective, we can live a faithful life. This is the reality of things hoped for. Our B application is to be inspired by the Old Testament heroes. All of these Old Testament figures that we read about today provide a model of faith for us to follow. They lived in some crazy times, they faced some severe persecution, and they did some amazing things in God's power, and they made tough decisions. But they did all of this because of their faith in the coming Messiah. We can live a faithful life because of our faith in the Messiah who, had, who has already come and will be returning. Remember their example. When we are faced with our struggles, when we're faced with our persecutions, when we're faced with our decisions and our ministry opportunities today, and our due application is to live faithfully. This is the proof of what is not seen. Our salvation is not something that has direct evidence. However, faithful living is the proof of our salvation. We don't earn our salvation through faithful living. We cannot earn our salvation through faithful living, but we, but we do provide evidence of our salvation through faithful living. Those around you should know who your king is because of your heavenly perspective. We do things, we say things, we make decisions, and we hold values different from those around us because we understand that there is an eternal kingdom waiting for us. Over the past year and a half, people have lived in fear of COVID or the other political party or debt or unemployment or many other reasons. But we know that this is not the end. If our hope was in this earth, this past year and a half has crushed that hope. But if our hope is in a Messiah who's going to come, and we have that eternal perspective, that heavenly perspective, then we can have hope to live a faithful life. I'm not downplaying those issues, but I am saying that when we have a heavenly perspective, we can live a faithful life, giving evidence of our salvation and sharing hope with those around us and maybe even provide a model of faith for others to follow. So our three application points again is to know that Jesus is coming back, to be inspired by the Old Testament heroes, and to live faithfully. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the the models that we have to look at in the Old Testament. And for us, those same heroes of the faith in the New Testament, for us to look at and to be inspired by them. So God, I pray that you will help us to look at them for inspiration, but to have our faith in you and to have our sight set on you and your coming kingdom. When we have that heavenly perspective, God, I pray that you will help us to make decisions that show your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. 
I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.